Hello, friends and neighbors, and welcome to another episode of Graphic Details. My name is Corbin Parker, and I am joined today by Andre Fertino. Here I am. Here he is. Welcome back. I'm here. It's, it's been a while, but it's so good to see you again. You got a new haircut. I like it. I, I, I tried. Yeah. I tried. I do it in the mirror all by myself. Oh, that's why that patch is missing back there. We don't, oh, okay. okay. We'll talk about that patch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, we have got an amazing comic to talk about today. Simon Says. Now, Andre was the writer for yes. Simon Says. Uh, the artist was Jesse Lee. Fantastic. Yes, Jesse Lee. Uh, in, in, indeed. Fantastic. I know, right? <laughs> Um, inspired by a true story. It's right there on the cover. Um, yeah, let's dig into this real quick. Sure. So I, I'm, I am sorry. I'm going to have to ask some of those traditional questions. Of course. What, what brought you to Simon? Oh God. You know, the funny thing is, is that I've racked my brain over trying to remember the moment that I remember reading about Simon Wiesenthal and I can't for the life of me figure it out. I know that it was somewhere around, I think, 2007 or 2008. And um, I was still a student at Savannah College of Art and Design. And I must have picked up something that was talking about it. I've always been intrigued by World War II history and, uh, of course, sadly, the Holocaust. But um, there was something that popped up about uh, the Jewish James Bond, which is one of the things they usually say about Simon. And, um, you know, that, that idea kind of popped in my head. I was like, oh, man, you know, Nazi hunter who's hunting down Nazis. I mean, we take it for granted now a little bit because pop culture is sort of inundated with, you know, I mean, Indiana Jones did it, but now everyone's doing it. And, um, but, you know, at the time in 08, I was like, I want to do a story about this. And I actually remember trying to, to do a, for one of those 24-hour comic, con, uh, mm-hmm. comic uh, competitions, I tried doing my own version of it. And I just... My artwork just wasn't that style. I have a very kind of Archie and Veronica, Betty and Veronica mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, a um, little bit more like cartoony slice of lifestyle. But I needed it. I, I envisioned even at an early age, I was like, I'm going to have to work with somebody on this project because this needs grit. This needs some depth. Yeah. For something with this subject matter, you've got to go more realistic. Right. Right. So, or, um, so then what brought you to Jesse? Jesse was an interesting experience. Um, I was at a coffee shop downtown and um, I was working on uh, another comic project uh, of my own and I was drawing, you know, on the um, bar and Jesse was the uh, was the bar uh, coffee barista there. And uh, he goes, oh, you do comics. And I go, yeah. He goes, oh, yeah, I do comics, too. And I'm like, OK, yeah, yeah, we all do <laughs> comics. We're all we're all in Savannah. Of course, everybody does comics. And I go, well. You know, what do you do? Let me see what you what are you working on? And he showed me his artwork and I was like, oh my God, this stuff's good. And um I actually had an artist on Simon Says before Jess. Um wonderful artist named Andrew Sides, who I went to SCAD with. And uh, you know, Andrew was great. I loved his style. Um not quite as clean as, as um as Jesse's, but just maybe as noirish. And um a lot of the first pages, um, actually I think in the back of the book. Or some of the original pages done, yes, by Je- uh, by Andrew Sides. So um, those are ones we did originally, and and you can even see that you know when Jess went back, he took a little influence from there. But um, the deal with Andrew was is that 
he was fastly discovering that he didn't want to do comics and he wanted to do more conceptual art, story-based visual development. So he kind of bowed out of it. Um, right as Dark Horse was interested in us, Dark Horse was like, hey, we actually think this is interesting. Um, and then Andrew kind of was like, well, I'm kind of out of comics. So, and Dark Horse actually eventually just on their own volition were kind of like, oh, I think we're going elsewhere. So Andrew's style is definitely a little bit more European. Yeah. <clears throat> it's a little bit more European. It's- and I can only say that now after having gone to Angoulême and, and done the International Comic Book Festival and purchased a ton of, you know, French comic books. And I was like, there's a definite European feel to his style. It's it's got a it's got d- different stylization. It's got Arnold Schwarzenegger arm wrestling. <laughs> I know, which is which is in here. But yeah, but Jess was uh, I, I hit Jess up shortly after and I was like, look, I'm working on a project. Would you be interested in maybe you know joining up with me? And uh, you know, he read the script and he said, hey, yeah, I'd love to do that. And uh, you know, that was it. That was lucky. I know. Incredibly lucky. There was a lot of luck to Simon Says getting made, you know. I mean, from our Kickstarter, uh, you know, to getting Image Comics on board. I mean, there's whole stories just for how each one of those even occurred, too. When did the Kickstarter take place? 2017. Um, and I, I don't want to say that this is was a fortuitous time, but this was right around the whole um, Charlottesville thing that was going on. and. You know, those, uh, the white supremacists marching with the tiki torches. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think that, uh, a lot of that going on and the turmoil in America and, um, you know, that really kind of pushed the Kickstarter into overdrive. Um, when people started to read, like, oh, it's a comic about Nazi hunters. We want to punch Nazis. Let's do that. <laughs> um, and then shortly after we took a trip up to the American Library Association conference at the behest of my, um, fantastic publicist. And um, while up there, uh, we were introduced to uh, somebody who worked at Image. Um, she was the library consultant for them. And um, she said, this, this comic is great because we had a little, um, we had the poster done. And I think we had maybe the original comic art pages that before we were still working on even the Kickstarter deliverable. But um, we sent her everything we had. And within a few weeks, uh, you know, we had Eric Stevenson called us up and said, hey, we like it. We'll have it. And uh, cool. I had to read that that email about three or four times. And I was just <laughs> I like, right? we just got Image Comics! I just flipped my lid. Because um, that was something we never even thought was even somewhat a possibility. But, um, yeah. Well, whose idea was the Pops of Red? Because uh, that um, really makes some of these pages sing. Yeah, that was my idea. Um, uh, I... A lot of influence comes from the two most prolific sources of Holocaust media, and that would be Mouse is a big influence, um, and then, of course, Schindler's List. And so this is a bit of a homage to mm-hmm. Schindler's List and the little girl in the red dre- uh, red sweater or dress. And um, so I felt like, you know, we want to keep the noir black and white, but we want to give a little bit of splash of color to give people some, you know, energy into it. And it was actually strategic. If you really look at it, everything that's splashed in red is violence. Yeah. So well, you I, was, know. I was just thinking, you know, in contrast to uh, like Schindler's List, yeah. the girl, you know, it, it's it's these, you know, it's yeah, in the, in the film room when you're with the eight eight, you know, mm-hmm. just kind of the more sinister moments in the comic are even subtly done with all the food that they leave on the table. You know, there's mm-hmm. lots of red on that. So. 
Um, which, you know, really got to thank Image Comics for that, too, because we couldn't afford color when we did the <laughs> Kickstarter print. And to do even just a one-tone color was just complicated. Um, but fortunately, you know, when you have... When you have that, you know, big comic book publisher money behind you, they're like, oh, yeah, sure, we can do that. Not a problem. So You really only want one yeah, more one color? color? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> so. But, um, yeah, so so that was that. Well, I love the noir aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that's that you, you do that beautifully. Thank you. And uh, it's it's a style that I'm really kind of getting more into now. Um, but Simon Says kind of got me back into comics, which is really which is why I'm excited to you know talk <laughs> with you. Um, you did a signing at the shop. I, I picked up a coffee. Mm-hmm. Oh, there we are. And um, you know, I mean, one of the owners of the comic shop. But I know now I'm not even almost like oh, <laughs> the owner bought my stuff. But um, but being there and you know enjoying you know just our shop culture and things like that. But then also being more ingrained in actually reading the comics and being a part of that culture. You know, they're, they're two different things. Mm-hmm. So I, I picked up Simon Says, and I didn't read it immediately. You know, I was like, I, I try and pick up most everything that people sign in the shop. You know, mm-hmm. I want to support you. And, you know, what better way can I do that than buying your work? Well, I can also read it. <laughs> so, But it sat on my bedside uh, bedside table for a couple months. And yeah, one that day, swastika glaring at you. So. I was just like, Whoa. Like it was spine out. Yeah. Okay, we're clean. Um, <laughs> but I was like, I'm ready to dig into this. And I sat down and I read it, and I was just like, I, I need, I need more. You know, I need a, I need more of this story. Mm-hmm. There's a one on the spine. I know. You know, I know. I'm sure you get that a lot. But I, I know, I know. And that was what Tristan wanted to be here. And one of his things was, okay, so what's the next one? <laughs> Where are we going from here? Because there's more story to tell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, there's so little I can really share right now. But uh, you know, the thing is, is that. Personally, I have enough content for Simon for eight issue, eight books, full books just like this. Uh, but I've you got know, chills now. I know, but unfortunately for us, all the luck led up to um, the book releasing shortly before the pandemic. So we ran up against a real hard fiscal situation, and um, you know, there's not. I mean, there's nothing again. I have nothing against Image on it at all, but. You know, I think Image saw the numbers and might have thought, you know, I don't know if we can do another one or whatnot. Um, but, uh, I mean, that's also to say, like, you know, those numbers were pretty good and um, I'm not ready to give up on it. Uh, so <clears throat> I can't say that, you know, can't say what's going on, but I can say that things are moving forward again. There's a little bit of... Uh, of renewed interest, you know, um, and so hopefully uh, we will find another home and a second coming for Simon to be able to have volume two or, you know, maybe something else, you know, coming up down the pipeline. But I've got to be ambiguous because I really don't have anything to, to say, but, you know, we have we have feelers going out. And we have things moving. So hopefully well, there will be more of that story. So hope is hope. If that never happens, I will very much at least release the scripts online for people to read them at some point. So. Well, that's cool. Do you want 
do you want to talk a little bit about your scripting process? Sure. And that with Simon says with storytellers, anything you do, mm-hmm. you know, I was I was talking to someone the other day, and they were just like, you know, I'm just blown away by comic writers, right? Because a lot of times, you know, they're once they're done, it's kind of a little bit out of their hands, you know, talking about with, with storytellers having the editor there and it kind of being like, no, 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 I got this. Mm-hmm. You, you wrote it. We're, we're good now. Right. Um, how, how, how is that process for you? Um, well, as an artist, I mean, the, the interesting factor for me is, is that, you know, you have your comic book writers, you have your comic book artists, and you have your comic book writer artists. And I kind of fall in that category. So... <clears throat> Unlike some other writers who only do writing and can draw only stick figures, you know, my ability as an artist allows me to really creatively visualize what that story is going to look like. And whether I'm writing for the storyteller or I'm writing for Simon Says, you know, even if I trust in both artists, which I do uh, completely, um, I still want to script the visuals as if I'm imagining what they're going to look like fully. Um, Whereas, like, you know, I'm sure everybody does that. Any writer does, but I can at least perspectively and strategically in a way visualize it and make it even easier so that it's an artist telling an artist hey this is what it's going to look like as opposed to a writer telling an artist and the writer still allowing or or leaning a little heavier on the artist capabilities so Mm -hmm. i like to say that that is what makes the difference for me i don't know if that's true or not or if i'm totally bsing but um you know when i go to my script it's always starts off with strict research whether it's fiction or nonfiction, historically based, whatever, um, you know, to make sure that everything has a strong, concrete basis in its narrative. Um, I will um, brainstorm a lot. I will bullet point a lot. I will start to create the structure, you know, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and lay out those blueprints before I ever put dialogue to anything. And um, and then in some situations, when I sit down and script, I will then completely turn on my uh, head and then I will only write down dialogue. So I'll go for pages on pages of just dialogue occurring and then I'll go back and go like, all right, these two characters are talking. What do I want that panel to describe in that? Um, And that kind of helps me approach it from a different angle too so that the writing um, is strong and sharp Mm -hmm. but not pushing the art either. You know, I mean, the biggest thing I know that writers have a problem with and if you've had editors tell me this is that you have to let the artwork do the sale. And that's true. But when you're doing something like Simon Says, where it is such heavy exposition and heavy narrative, there's a lot of conversation to take place in that. Not talking heads per se, but just movement through verbiage. Um, you know, it, it's a different story than if I was doing something a little bit more visual like Storyteller. That's fair. So... We, and we talked about in the last podcast, you know, you, you kind of consider yourself a historical fiction writer. Right. Um, you know, I, I got a C on a, on a historical <laughs> fiction piece when I was in 10th grade. Thank you, Miss Lucas. Oh, um, apparent, what was it about? Well, so, uh, it was about uh, France. Okay. And uh, apparently there were no lemurs in the Napoleonic era. In France. Okay. Or uh, I guess they also didn't pilot hot air balloons. Those were the two hangups? This, the, 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 well, I'm sure that there were more. But, okay. But those are the ones that really that really rang out. And, and so in my head, I was like, what's historic fiction, though? I mean, doesn't that open the doors up to, like, anything happening? Yeah. You know, I, I guess um, 
I have to say that I am a pretty strict believer of staying true to historical uh, I, fact on it. Um, so, you know, that's to say that the leeway for me personally isn't a lot. I don't, ha- I don't allow myself a lot of leeway and I don't really like to read things that give a lot of leeway um, because I think that it easily takes you out of – if you are a historian, it easily takes you out of that experience. But I also think it does a disservice to the history of the time as well. So, you know, um, so like right now – gosh, I hope this doesn't come out wrong. But right now, like you look at a lot of historical fiction that really takes – um, a lot of looseness to portrayals of different people, you know, and while that might be very, um, diversifying for, you know, the people who are reading it today at the same time, I would go to say like, well, does that really ring true with what that was historically, uh, valid with? And I only say that from the point of view of like, are we doing a disservice to anything, you know, of history, if we are making history so abstract in those senses. So, um, you know, I think that that's not to say there's not a place for it. If you want to do that, sure, do that. But for me and my own tastes, I like to be able to be put in that history and imagine this happen. And that happened with Simon Says. Like, I tried to steer away from any real um, Nazi characters and any real um, people too. And if you'll notice, I never once call Simon Simon Wiesenthal. It's always just very specifically Simon because I want to create in this world the sense of, well, Simon can really be a placeholder for any, you know, Holocaust survivor who was going through that. Um, but um, I also wanted to leave open the possibility that in this world there is a Simon Wiesenthal and he's doing the same thing. Um, I never wanted to take a real Nazi character and have him become the main villain because I felt like that would deter any of the success of an actual Nazi hunter who did bring that in. So like, you know, Adolf Eichmann, one of the biggest, you know, Nazis post-World uh, World War II that was hunted down. You know, it would be a disservice to the people who actually did bring Eichmann in if I suddenly made him go up against Simon and Simon wins. So, yeah. Um, so there's those kind of things that I think you have to be really strict with the history because you don't want the next generation to pick up that book and go, well, this is, you know, I mean, we as comic book writers who are writing nonfiction stuff have an obligation to kind of make sure that we're keeping, we're stewards of that history mm-hmm. because we don't want to make the next generation start to look at this comic and go, that's how it happened, you know? Um, and, and so that's why I'm kind of really a stickler for like, if we're going to base things in historical fiction periods, be true to what those historical fictional periods convey. I appreciate that (laughs) because I I think that you succeed very well Mm -hmm. in Simon Says. You're able to create appropriately in this world, just like you said, you know, there's, there's enough there. Well, there's plenty there to tie it into real world, mm-hmm. but there's enough there of of your own storytelling to pull it into your own world. And, you know, I, I don't have that kind of steadfast attention to detail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's why yeah, I, I, I appreciate <clears throat> that. And I can look up to that. Right. Um, and again, I mean, I preface that with your listeners, too, is that like that's my own personal opinion, you yeah. know, and I don't know if it's right or wrong. It might very well might not be the right response, you know. Um, because we are in a day and an age where we do need to be more mindful of every reader that's reading our books and where they see themselves in this project. But 
you know, I think it's, I just think it's important that we also really consider, you know, making sure that we are representing everything equally in the way it needs to be represented. Mm-hmm. And, so. and I, I respect that. I think that you do a good job uh, with that. You know, there is, there are places out there for, you know, whatever else there, you know, like when I was, when I was thinking about, you know, movie counterparts to things like mm-hmm. this, you know, you, you bring up Schindler's List, but you know, I, I, I think of the other side of that coin, you've got Inglorious Bastards. Right. You've Which got- I actually despise. So, um, and that, I despise it for that reason too, mm-hmm. because at the end, you know, he takes the, the, um, the freedom of like literally killing Hitler at the mm-hmm. end using flame torches and like that to me was like, I don't even see the the narrative point to this, you know, like what is the actual narrative that you're conveying? Is this alternative history, which I didn't feel like it was like, it just suddenly felt like he turned the movie upside on its head. And I was like, was this really the story how it had to end? Was this, was this the narrative you had to tell? So that's an exact point of contest. Of what I would be contesting mm-hmm. when I'm telling, and you. I, I almost, I almost, uh, that's like a flip the table. Like you brought that in, I'm like, I'm gonna flip this table if you like, you know, bring that up. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> oh no, it, so. I'm joking. <laughs> well, I just, I just meant to your point <laughs> to bring it up as an right. example. That is a perfect uh, the other, example. Other one, um, Jojo Rabbit. Oh, I'm a little bit nicer of Jojo Rabbit, but then Jojo Rabbit is they're all fictional characters, mm-hmm. including you know his imaginary his Hitler. imaginary Hitler. Yeah. So that to me is a narrative that's that's fine in that narrative that they mm-hmm. tell, but um, you know I think it's more of just like I don't know it's more the other direction with um, with uh, Inglorious Bastards that you know I felt that like they were doing a great job of having original content and characters. And then at the very end, they're like, and the world war two ends because we locked them all up in this theater and they killed them all. Like, you know, Hmm, thumbs up. Right. Yeah. So another part of that point is the character of this Oliver Smith, which is the African American journalist. Um, You know, he is uh, a stand in for Ollie Stewart, who was a black war correspondent during world war two. Again, an, an, an instance where I wanted to change the name slightly so that he could be that representation while not, you know, full on saying like, and then afterwards, after the war was over, Ollie Stewart engaged in Nazi hunting, you know, alongside Simon Wiesenthal. Like to me, that's that disservice mm-hmm. of the actual historical figure and what they did. So um, that's another example, I think, that's in it. And and a character that I wrote that I really loved, I mean, um, I found that. Uh, putting Ollie in here was uh, another real um, another real opportunity to really push another undersung hero mm-hmm. of World War II. And um, if we have our way, you know, his character appears quite a bit more throughout the rest of the comics. So. Excellent. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about story mm-hmm. and what happens in here. So you've got Simon. He is working with the Americans. They are hunting down Nazis. Uh, and then... Uh, a gentleman appears in his life, Bruno, mm-hmm. or reappears, I should say. It's a little a little cloudy about their history, mm-hmm. but as as you learn uh, throughout, it's there's some points of contention there. Uh, Americans are like, pack it up, we're out of here. Which I love the way that the Americans are, are. Which we always do. We always like to pack it up and leave the party before <laughs> that, the party's that, done. Right. That was yeah. that was one of my uh, kind of like sad smile scenes mm-hmm. when when the Americans just like. He can't. He can't call Simon by his by his actual name. Yep. He doesn't remember. He doesn't give him that respect, which is yeah. 
I don't know. That, yeah. Anyway, they pack it up. Simon's like, we're not done here. There's still a lot that we have to do. Simon and Bruno hit the trail to to make their way um, and continue to put uh, these Nazis away. Uh, they encounter Oliver. They want him to write the story because they think that if they get it in front of these people's eyes, it's going to make a difference. They're, they're going to understand that there's still evil out there. Which we know. Which yeah. we know actually does work. So. Yes. Yeah, so, and then you've got... They, they find out that this Roar character... Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a Nazi. Now he's in charge of the police. Yes. We need to make something happen about this. And uh, they do. And it's it's a it's a great little lead up. I, I love the the world building with the eight eight. You know, I, I want I want to see some more of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the the sort of the the gut punch <laughs> that that last page. Uh, you find out that Bruno is the one that killed Simon's wife. Uh is is that part of the real Simon story or is this No, that wasn't part of the real Simon story and, and Bruno is a pretty fictitious character in Simon's life. Um Simon Wiesenthal did work with former Nazis mm-hmm. following the war and he actually was close friends with um not close friends but was friendly with Albert Speer's uh Hitler's not, uh, architect. Um, and even went as far as like vouching for him afterwards, like, oh, this man, I vouch, I think he's changed and blah, 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 blah. Um, but, uh, you know, the difference between my Simon and Simon Wiesenthal was, um, Simon Wiesenthal did understand the power of media, um, was very strategic about how he used that media. Um, but where the divergent uh, stands is really in, and how, uh, brutal their tactics. Well, no, that's not true either. Both their tactics were brutal. But whereas Simon, um, our Simon is more of a action hero, would jump from a moving train, you know, mm-hmm. shoot him up and then ask questions later. Uh, Simon Wiesenthal was a little bit more strategic, a little bit more planning, a little bit more of an, he would actually contest this probably and say he's not an armchair, you know, uh, uh, Avenger, but Probably just a little bit. I mean, he's carried guns. He had Mm -hmm. attempts on his life, too. But, you know, I think that um, as far as my research found, he wasn't jumping out of trains and cohorting with Nazis and and that sort of thing. It's very thrilling for the story of it all. Yes, very much. That's the the freedom I took was to expand it and make it just kind of accentuate it more. Because I think there was a lot that Wiesenthal, Wiesenthal had done that was prolific. I mean, he changed... I mean, he, he he avenged many, many people and their families. And while some in the Jewish community found his ways and his, I mean, other Nazi hunters actually found his ways counterintuitive, found some of his statements misleading. You know, other people still to this day very much state like, oh, gosh, the greatest Nazi hunter of all time, Simon Wiesenthal. So, um, you know, while that's contested, he did so much good and so much change. Um, that this was just an opportunity to accentuate that in an almost ultra violent opportunity to be like, okay, well, we, and even to this day and age, aren't satisfied enough of just putting them away. We want to beat them up too. So that's yeah. kind of that guilty pleasure we put to this book. Well, well I think that that's fair. And I, and I love his relationship with Bruno. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that it, seeing their story before that kicker at the end really, it, it does build a lot and it, it makes it all that more heartbreaking mm-hmm. you know that balance of you know I, I need that revenge but he's also an enormous tool to me 
to more revenge. Right. And I guess it's that sort of scale of, you know, what is what is more and it ebbs and flows in in subsequent chapters. If we get to those, you'll see the the highs and the lows and that really creates the more conflict within Simon because he's working alongside a man that he is strategically mousetrapping into a, you know, mm-hmm. his end but at the same time being like, all right, I got to use the guy. The guy's so useful. So, well, and I I liked, you know, as I was reading it the first time, you know, when you get to the last couple pages, they've won, there's celebration, you yay. know. Yay, yay. But like right before you turn that page, you've got Bruno and, and he does the thing where he's like he's just trying to get with um Angela. With Angela, yeah. yeah. And just, you know, it's it's one of the only instances of like real kind of lewd cursing mm-hmm. in there and you're like oh I, I didn't really get that from bruno for most of the book and then you, you you turn that page and you see like he's kind of like the big bad and it's 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 almost like just a, a short foreshadowing of like is this guy really i don't think it's just a foreshadow to bruno and his character in this i i really wrote it in a way that the character is indicative of the comfortability that I think the Nazis had after the war too. You know, you're talking like right after Hitler died, all of them were scared and they were frightened little rats, like abandoning the ship. But once they found their comfortable little nooks, you know, they loosened up. Maybe they might've extended those anti-Semitic traits back to their next of kin. You know, maybe they even started some new chapters of the sympathetic German, you know, Mm -hmm. fascist clubs. But you see all of that. But you see all that. So, so what Bruno is really doing in the whole flow of the volume is going from that scared rat on a ship to becoming a little bit more macho at the Mm -hmm. end because He's found his place. He's found his comfortability. Mm-hmm. And that opens up to get you to that end where you go, ah, okay. Which, so. and, and that that hit me so hard. <laughs> and, uh, you succeeded very well in that for me. Thank you. Because um, I was just like, I, I, I had almost a physical reaction to that. Just kind of like a, it made my stomach churn a little bit. And I was like, what is going on here? What a twist. You what didn't see twist? it coming, yes, right? Exactly. So. M. Night Shyamalan must have just I been know, yeah. right in your back there to get oh, you to yeah, that I ending. Um, well, so, Secretly, they're all lizard people. No, I'm joking. You know, that's what I thought. <laughs> Turn to page. No, I'm just um, <clears throat> when you're talking about, you know, just kind of like amping up the, the thrill of it, um, that's what initially drew me to wanting to to do this on our show was because a lot of this is very cinematic mm-hmm. and I couldn't help as I was reading this just going to like you know just the way that Jesse sets up some of these some of these scenes um I like I, I need to see this on a screen next mm-hmm. you know I don't because you know, it, it sounds like you've written this a little bit extended play, episodic, right? You know, um, I couldn't. I couldn't, I see this as like a limited HBO series. That's what that's I what I was. That's what I was going for. A limited series. You know, if are there eight? There's eight episodes, right? Right. But they're all an hour to an hour and twenty minutes long. Yes, yeah, very much in like like. Uh, like a Band of Brothers esque, mm-hmm. you know, that level or Boardwalk Empire, you know, something of that manner. Um, where I actually like, you know, the way the books break up is without giving you too much of it, like 
I have an idea of three set trilogies that take mm-hmm. place throughout different parts of Simon's life. So, you know, each trilogy of, of volumes would kind of fall into a different sort of thematic styling. Mm-hmm. So you have the black and white noir for this, you know, another series would be done in the sixties. So you'd have a little bit more of that, you know, vintage tell like, you know, yeah. movie kind of styling to it. And then one done a little bit more in the eighties where it's a little more edgy and, you know, gritty uh cinematically so that's cool yeah we'll see if it gets there who knows i'm ready (laughs) um so that that being said you know Mm -hmm. you've got to cast it yes so and i gave you a little bit of homework on that you did you gave me a little homework and i'll just say that you know the only two people i could really think of casting for would be obviously simon simon and bruno Mm -hmm. and um that those castings have been things i've thought about consistently because there were a few times actually uh we did get optioned around for television and film rights um yeah and it got real twice like real real um and unfortunately i blame that amazon hunter show for one of those times that it didn't uh, pan out because you know no offense to them i mean they were probably in publication or production of that before we even got landed our um our deal but um, that was a bummer because once that came out, I think that kind of put the kibosh on another Nazi hunter show. Um, but uh, I thought about it and it's altered as we've gone through. But I think the two characters, um, it's always been the same one for Simon Jack. I think they call him Jack. It's Jack Huston or Jack Houston. Um, he is he played Ben-Hur in the Ben-Hur uh, reboot that came out a few years ago. Um, he also played. I saw him the first time in Boardwalk Empire. He was oh, okay. the um, yeah. he was the guy with half the face that had been blown off in World War One. And then most recently, he played in um, House of Gucci. Was yeah. it? Yeah. So he was my choice for Simon. And if you look at him, um, if you look at him in his period work, he has the mustache and kind yep. of the the cut. There's a few pictures I saw of him. I was like, that's perfect. Like he looks like the role. Um, and then uh, the other one for Bruno, I wanted to choose uh, Alexander Draymond, who uh, you probably know him, and I only know him from uh, The Last Kingdom. So he okay. played Uhtred, son of Uhtred. Um, his character uh, on that is so loyal and so moral, moralistic. Uh, you know, I love the character, but I love the way he speaks. He's... I think he was German born or he spent, he lived in Germany. So when you hear him, he's got a very thick German accent and I didn't pick him just because of that, but his, his command, his voice, his look, you know, I wanted a more chiseled appearance for Bruno, the contrast, maybe a little bit more on Simon, who's Mm -hmm. a little leaner Mm -hmm. because Bruno does represent that, you know, the perfect Aryan child kind of look. So, um, you know, I wanted that to kind of, you know, juxtapose his real darker side on it and then i actually um i will say that for sarah which is simon's wife who you don't see really in the first book but volume two would have had her in it quite a bit more uh would have been like a blonde anne hathaway okay yeah yeah. like anne hathaway played in a movie not too long ago where she was blonde and i was like that's it that's (laughs) what she looks like okay yeah (laughs) all right so i went Different direction. Okay, let me see. But, so for Simon, I had two, and and one is is not really. I think it was just kind of the look for a couple of things he's been in recently. But Pedro Pascal. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I, he's not Jewish or oh, that doesn't or anything, matter. Oh, yeah, but yeah. you know, I, I think that he could handle the 
the thrill mm-hmm. of it all. But I think he also kind of carries the look. Um, I can see it. And then on a kind of an other side of the spectrum, Adrian Brody. As Simon? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, wait, and Pedro Pascal's who? Oh, I was saying oh, both of them the contenders for Oh, okay. I mean, Adrian Brody's great, but, you know, the problem is Adrian Brody already played in The Pianist. Right, and that was why I was like, yeah. mm-hmm. You know, and um, my thing was, I, you know, another actor I would say would have been good for Simon would have been Milo Vitamalach. What is it? Vito Malagli. He was, like, the main character in Heroes. He's in the TV show This Is Us. He played uh, Rocky Balboa's son in Rocky Balboa. Um, it's like Adrian. It's my wife's favorite show, and she loves him. She's obsessed with him. His name is uh, Adrian. The uh, oh wait, Milo. Milo uh, Vit, Vit, uh, Vitamaglia. Vitamaglia. You can't say. It. You know what? It's Italian, and I'm terrible. I'm Italian too. And Ventimiglia. There you go. So, there you yeah. go. <laughs> he would have been a good Simon, I think, too. Yeah, he um, Actually, he's got a, a a young Jim Carrey look about him. Almost. But you know what I like to do when I come up, like when people have, haven't asked me this question, but when we got close to potentially maybe making a TV show or a movie, my thought process was like, don't pick a big contender. Don't pick a big name because I don't want that to supersede the character themselves. You know, when you pick somebody who's so big, like Adrian Brody, yeah. you know, typecast and Mr. You know, Jewish guy, or you pick, you know, uh, Paulo Pasquale, you know, who is just, he's the freak of Mandalorian. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to, you know, are you watching, where do you stop that? Where are you, are you watching that? Simon or are you watching Pedro Pascal? Yeah. Are you watching Mando or are you watching Simon? Right. right. So. Oh, that, that's completely fair. Yeah. And that's, that's where I, I come into trouble with some of these sometimes. Cause it's like, well, all I can all I can really come up with right now is, but Pasquale's great because when you really think about Mando, you know, even though he was, I know he was under the mask a bunch, but I've also heard that he wasn't under the mask a bunch. But his cadence and his speaking, <laughs> you know, how much he's like, you know, what can be portrayed so much through just three sentences, mm-hmm. that's really important to I think Simon as well because this is a war torn post-Holocaust survivor who lost 80 members of his family. Like yeah. He's going to say fewer words. He's going to be more thoughtful and more planning and more strategic in what he says and does. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we know Pablo can do that pretty well. Right. And a little bit more, uh, I guess, detective-y right. than just going in and making it happen. Exactly. Um, who are your picks for the other ones, though? So, Bruno, and again, I, I went with a, rel- a relative. I went with a big name, but uh, Michael Fassbender. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I just, he could do it. He could do it, and and I, again, you know, he he played Magneto. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's. I'm also thinking, you know, he's. Oh God, I hate to say this because he's not that old, but you but know, he's, he's a little he, old. He might be aging out. Yeah, of it. yeah, yeah. You know, you need guys that are in like their late twenties, early thirties, kind of for the role. You, you if do. we were making, if if we're being like logistic right now, like you and I have just been given a two million dollar budget to go make a or a twenty million dollar budget to go make a pilot TV show, like you know. Thinking like, what can we get? What can we afford with that? Yeah. Um, Erhard Rohr. I Who? said, huh? What did you say? Erhard Rohr. Erhard uh, Rohr. Oh, okay. That's uh the the Nazi at the end. Oh, oh, oh okay. Gee, sorry. my character. Jeez, and I'm not, <laughs> sorry. I, I'm sorry. I was thinking about uh, actors. actors yeah, like, you know. <laughs> no, uh, to play him, um, I said Ralph Fiennes. Oh yeah, yeah. To, you know. Yeah, yeah. There, there, and there was someone I kept picturing, and I could not put a name to it. But that would that I think would be perfect for that part. But I just I couldn't. Well, do we it. know he can play a Nazi really, really right. well. So, right. so again, you know, we've already seen him do that, and so it's mm-hmm. like 
is that it's two on the nose, but it's like, I, mm. yeah, well. Um, and then uh, Oliver Smith, Jeffrey Wright, which again, maybe oh, yeah. a little, a little too old, but, and I don't know if it's just maybe just seeing him in the Wes Anderson film recently where he plays the journalist, but. Um, I had picked for, um, if I could get anybody for Ollie uh, Smith. Oh my gosh, hold on. Um, I'm terrible with names, you know, like I'll watch a movie and I'll be like, oh, it's that dude who does that thing from that place, you know, but I would have picked uh, Sterling K. Brown. Yeah. For Ollie. I like I think that. Sterling K. Brown would be good, but he would outshine, I think, <laughs> Jack Hurston and um, Draymore because, I mean, they both had their own TV shows, but yeah. freaking Sterling isn't like in everything now. So what about Channing Tatum as Bruno? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I don't know. No. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, if we were going to turn into a buddy cop thing and they were right, like, you know. Okay, so Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson. Ben St- there you go. No, I'm sorry. If they were going to do that, they would be like Seth Rowan or Seth. Um, oh, like Seth Rogen and Seth Rogen, James yeah. Franco or something. No, it would be Seth Rogen and it would be uh, Channing Tatum. Oh, okay. Seth Rogen would be you know Simon. Come on, man. I mean, we're just going to go like find some Nazis and kill them. Like, what's the big deal? Just smoke a doobie. Let's go, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to. <laughs> no, I know it's terrible. It's terrible, but. Well, who would you who would you have directed, or at least direct? Okay, because if you if we've got eight or nine episodes, you can have different directors Could. doing different different cool things. Though you know you, you want a kind of underlying feel for the whole thing. Dallas Bryce Howard. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, she's just killing it with every Star Wars one she does. Um, so I would pick her to do an episode. Um, probably. At one point in time, there was, there was <laughs> would have gotten like J.J. Abrams to do it, but I don't think I need that much lens flare. Um, so <laughs> it's yeah, it's too much, and I actually have grown to like not like a lot of his work anymore. Um, I mean, it would all just be in an alternate universe, right? And we'd all be tapping out the same lost number code, and that's really what caused the whole war. Um, oh my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> we got to go back. We got to go back to the <laughs> island. Um, there was, was another name. journey, okay? There was, was another name I had off the top of my head. I'm trying to remember. Oh, um, is it Joe Johnston who did The Rocketeer and did the first Captain America? I'd have him do it, only because he really knows how to play to that world. But he's not really a noir guy, but... Oh, he was art director for Indiana Jones. He was. I mean, that's if we were going a little more, not camp with it, but I mean, the thing about Joe Johnston's work is that it's, um, it's iconic. You know, like Rocketeer, Captain America, definitely set in those eras, a little more iconic, maybe a little bit more Norman Rockwell-esque mm-hmm. in their styling. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I guess if you want to stay with like the, the noir stuff, you know, I mean, I think I could see Dallas Bryce Howard directing a whole season. It would really go oh, well. So I, I love that. I, yeah. don't, I don't have any options aside from that now. So. <laughs> <laughs> so do you keep it black and white with the pops of red? At least for the first, the first episodes in in this. Yeah, I, I'm, this I'm maybe yeah, or super muted, you know, mm-hmm. super cold um, color scheme to it. There was actually at one point in time when we were optioning the rights around um, the production company that was optioning it had an interesting idea of going with it as a animated series and doing it as like a highly stylized animated show. 
Mm-hmm. And my point response to them was like, well, if you could get the people who did like Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, because I liked that styling of it. You know, if you could imagine like, no, like Spider-Noir, you yeah, know, yeah. kind of like in the whole thing, like done around that styling would have been interesting with like maybe some zip a tone to it or whatnot to really push it. Um, but, um, I would keep it noir-esque a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know though, because I would say black and white, some, I, I hear every now and again, people go like, oh, black and white doesn't sell as well if there's not color in it. You know, like, I don't know if people can sit through black and white movies, but if the accent, accentuated red is in there, like you can do it for Schindler's List, but could mm-hmm. you do eight episodes at an hour long each of that well if but if if you're following along and and kind of your trajectory for the story though i mean you mm-hmm. get maybe the the first three episodes are black and white and then right. you bump to the 60s it and changes then you get a little those bit yeah. colors you know i don't want to it's just like wandavision right the first episode is in the style of mary tyler moore or, or i know but i'll tell you i actually hated that only at the beginning i didn't like it and then as i saw they were changing it mm-hmm. i understood where they were going with it but at first i was like this is hard to kind of watch too. I mean, maybe it's just because we're out of that era now and we got color, but I don't know. I like I like black and white film a lot. Oh, so do I. But, um, but, but you know, now you're seeing films. You know, uh, they come out with two cuts. You got the color cut and the black and white cut. Mm-hmm. And with movies that are just so brilliant in color, you know, why would you go to the black and white? I mean, well, I'm a huge. Um, a huge classic movie fan. Love, I mean, big buff on classic movies. I mean, so I like them, but the difference is, is that even when they were doing WandaVision, um, you know, they tried, I will grant them this, but there is a certain thing that we've evolved. I don't know if it's an evolution. I think it might be a de-evolution, but, you know, in cinema, you would watch an old movie and they would not change uh, cuts or not change scenes yes for minutes on end yes so you would see it from this one point of view which would make anybody of our generation and a little newer go like what's weird like they, yeah, you can't put your finger your on seat, it you're though. like what's going on why is it all it feels like i'm watching a play but the te- you know there was no cuts as much and now they say like our attention span is cut down to a point where we can't things have to change within every six seconds oh i you know for us to really feel invested in it i forget what i was watching or listening to I, it, it may have been unspooled mm-hmm. uh the movie podcast um and they were talking about the difference between you know 40s and 50s cinema these minute long cuts and, mm-hmm. and things and now i think they went through and they 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 counted the amount of shots in like a Marvel movie, mm-hmm. you know, nothing is longer than three seconds. Right. And so I, I can't help but think about that when I'm watching movies now, like just like timing in my head, like how many, how many cuts are there and what an editing nightmare that must be. Right. But it, you know, when you, when you look at this, the, the, the cinema from the forties and the fifties, it's its own art form. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to assume those are the limitations that they had, though. They couldn't just up and stop and, and and have all the different angles that you needed. It was like, these are the angles that you have. This is what we could afford to shoot because we've... <laughs> right. When you've got, you know, 10 cameras and... Yeah, know. so like if you watch something like North by Northwest, there's probably like only in total 200 cuts. And then you put it next to like a Marvel movie, which is like 30,000 or 40,000 or more. It's It's ridiculous, so... There was a speaking of um, great old movies. There was one that I actually think that's you know really relevant for people to watch today. That um, actually was partly 
a little inspiration for Simon Says, but really something I went back to is called The Mortal Storm with uh, Jimmy Stewart. Okay. And uh, it was filmed in 1940 uh, and was actually uh, banned by the Nazi Germany at the time because it's set in, I think, um, like the the Belgian or the Belvarian Alps or something like that. And it's about a small community who um, are academics and educated. It's all in like a university town and follows this one family. And um, Jimmy Stewart's like an extended member of the family by way of being the father's like fellow professor at this university. And it's on the onset of Nazis, of Nazism. And it follows as this family is torn apart by their split loyalties and and everything. And um, you're watching this movie and it's an American movie, you know, um, with Jimmy Stewart and all these actors that are playing um, these characters. And it's happening before we went into world war two. And you're just watching this and going like, wow, like, you hear after the war about how we didn't know that much about what was going on. Like the general public didn't really know about the Holocaust like we did today. But when you watch this movie now and you go at it and you're like, holy hell, like there's a lot here, you know, and it's even more topical when you look at it compared and contrast to what is going on today. And you're like, this movie is extremely relevant and extremely uh, viable to understand not necessarily foreign country things going on out in the international spectrum, but even what's going on here in America. So I would tell your listeners, and if you haven't seen it yet either, I think it's, um, I wrote it down. (laughs) I think it's either on Amazon prime right now, or it's on HBO uh, max, but what's a phenomenal movie. It really is. And um, it's uh, very, very a lot for 1940. So. Wow. I'm going to check it out. Yeah. Probably only about 20 cuts in that sequence, so. Perfect. <laughs> I also like long shots. I like shots. Oh, uh, yeah, I do like long shots. You know? Oh, And we also, you know, if we're going to talk about long shots, I mean, Daredevil, you know, the long shots with those sequences oh, they do. In the hallway, that, like, one the of the jail fight episodes. sequence. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. I'm reading uh, Chip Zdarsky's uh, Daredevil run right now, and okay. I'm really enjoying it. Nice. Um, But <laughs> we digress. <laughs> um. How can we support you? Where, what, what is the best way that we can we can get get Andre's books in our hands, or <laughs> or, or, or what, what can we do to to, to help you be you? Uh, yeah, I mean, buy books, buy the graphic novels. I mean, buy them at your local bookstore if you can, and if you can't, get them on Amazon. Uh, you know, at this point in time, like I'm not, you know. Mr. Moneybags over here expecting to make money bags off of it, but you know what really keeps projects going is the same thing that we gets our TV shows going, you know, um, if you have more watchers and you view more viewership, the longer the project will go, you know? So who knows? I mean, if we had an influx of, you know, thousands of more Simon says being sold, maybe somebody would be like, Hey, that's really great. Let's do another issue. But, um, I would just say, you know, if you want to support me on any projects I do in the future, just make sure you get the word out and get your friends to buy it and pick it up. And, you know, that'll keep the creative process going and the storytelling coming. Cool. And where can we follow you along or follow along with you? Um, you know, I'm most active on Instagram at ARF Studios. Um, so that's ARF Studios. Uh, I really, I'm just with a newborn baby. I don't really have that much time to be on social media. And I've never really been particularly great at it. You know, um, whenever I would do the Kickstarters, I was just, I had to go into overdrive. And mm-hmm. I got to a point where I always felt like I was pestering. But I don't <laughs> like to pester. Yeah. 
So um, I don't really keep up on a lot of social media platforms, but Instagram I do because there's just so little, um, little like the stakes aren't that high. Like I hate Twitter for God's sake. Do I hate Twitter? I feel like Twitter is only where you go if you want to like bitch about things. <laughs> so, and I mean, even when I go on there and bitch about things, I get like maybe one like for every seven posts I make. So I still don't know why I'm on there, but like <laughs> I'm there if you want to under the same, you know, handle, but um, Instagram, I, you know, you can catch up on there. You can see the latest projects I'm working on, you know, see slice of life, see some of my baby pictures, that kind of thing. So Adorable. <laughs> um, all right. Unrelated. What are you enjoying right now? Uh, in which way? TV show, book, movie? Just any, anything in your life. What are you enjoying oh, right now? God. Well, uh, The Gilded Age. I'm really enjoying The Gilded Age, which is on HBO. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, If you're a fan of uh, Downton Abbey, it's the American Downton Abbey um, set in the Industrial Revolution period of the late 1800s in New York. It's a super slow, but yet super wholesome kind of TV show. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the stakes are high for those times, <laughs> <Right>. society, <laughs> balls and all that. But, um, you know, as the as the person who loves historical stuff, that's what I watched. I just finished watching the fifth season and the final season of Last Kingdom, which is a guilty pleasure of mine because it's really more of like a CW soap opera set in the Anglo-Saxon era. <laughs> Um, you know, everybody's betraying everyone and everyone's sleeping with everyone. Um, and then, uh, I mean, the biggest guiltiest pleasure I watched lately was love is blind. If not, if not for nothing else to make my wife happy because she liked watching that. It's also important. Yeah. You know, happy (laughs) wife, happy life. So we're, we're watching doom patrol right now. Oh yeah. 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 That was good too. I finished peacemaker, which was great. We haven't started. Uh, Oh, you know, doom patrol, you're going to. That's another instance of Doom Patrol where I was like, with the history aspects of it, I was like, come on. I mean, I know this is DC and you can do whatever you want, but like, that didn't really happen in history. Or what are you doing? You're changing the timeline. But um, Doom Patrol's fun, but I felt the longer you went into it, the more convoluted it got. Like, they went down a rabbit hole they couldn't get out of. Oh, they went down a donkey asshole. Yes, that's too. So So that, (laughs) it's no longer jumping the shark or nuking the fridge. It's the the donkey asshole. So... (laughs) There you go. Excellent. Well, Andre. Are we really going to end that note on a donkey asshole? Is that what we're going to do? <laughs> I was going to say, Andre, uh, what are you doing tomorrow? Uh, <laughs> no, we are going to end on that. Okay. Unless you've got no, anything no, else. No, no, I have nothing else to say. I have, what can you say after you talk about it? a donkey right. asshole? <laughs> suppose so. so. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. It's my um, pleasure. I can't wait to have you back. Yeah. For uh, whatever future projects uh, you might have. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I guess I can tell your listeners in, on uh, September of this year will be my next graphic novel, which is uh, Tokyo Rose Zero Hour, which is the based off the true story of Iva Tagori. She was a Japanese-American woman who survived World War II in Japan, working as a radio show propagandist for the Japanese Empire, but at the same time secretly sabotaging those efforts and... Uh, uh, helping out her American POWs. So wow. it's based off a true story, almost more so than Simon says. And um, very excited. Worked on that with artist Kate Casanel and uh, famed letterist Janice Chang, who's done everything from uh, Iron Man with Stan Lee all the way up to working with Gene Yang on uh, his latest graphic novels. So um, it's a really exciting uh, project. And that's coming out through Tuttle Publishing in September. And it'll be my first hardback. 
graphic novel. That's so. exciting. Well, I cannot wait yeah. to pick up a copy of that. Oh uh, yeah, hopefully it'll be uh, it'll be in bookstores very soon. So awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Andre. Thank you, um, everybody. Uh, don't forget to check out our past episodes. Uh, we've got another one with Andre where we talked about uh, his most recent. Uh, release, which is Jim Henson's Storytellers Shapeshifters, which is the uh, Children of Lear, uh, which is a brilliant little story, uh, and it's part of an anthology, so you can pick it up. You don't have to worry about anything else. Um, don't forget to like or subscribe and listen to us on all the various platforms that are Spotify, Apple, Anchor, and Stitcher. And uh, rate us and support us in in the best way that you can. Uh, This is Corbin Parker signing off. This is Andre Fertino. Eat all your vegetables and remember to spade and neuter your cats and dogs. That is very important.